0: Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Halibut people and our world. I'm Glenn Wheeler. To the Mi'kmaq, storytelling was a means of entertaining people and sharing information. Their stories were more like story cycles. A storyteller could take episodes from one and insert them into another, to highlight certain points. The Mi'kmaq loved to hear stories, which could go on for hours. It was a way of enjoying each other's company as they sat listening, laughing, and smoking their pipes. Halibu members told their stories at the meeting of chief and council in Stephenville on February 11th. Since then, there have been meetings across Halibu territory as those who have been turned down or are going to lose their cards try to figure out why and if and how they can appeal. But though the meetings have been well attended and there has been some coverage in the West Coast media, the Halibut story is starting to recede from the provincial headlines. And it's never really hit the national news other than an obligatory story after the final membership numbers were announced early in the month. You'd think this would be a bigger story. After all, 10,000 people are losing their status cards, one day an in Indian, and the next day not, courtesy of the government of Canada. I asked Don Bradshaw, NTV correspondent for the West Coast, for his take on media reaction to the halibu enrollment issue and what it would take to make it a bigger story. Don, uh,
1: you've been covering the halibu story for quite a while. Uh, in fact, before there was a Halibut ban. What was the story uh, when you uh, were first on the beat?
2: Well, the story was essentially the former Federation of Newfoundland Indians um, that was uh, the organization that was looking for uh, recognition. They were. They're trying to establish this. What has become the Halibut Mi'kmaq First Nations Band. Uh, I mean, that was a process that uh, involved years and years of negotiations between the uh, former FNI and the federal government. And uh, of course, I was involved in uh, covering that process, um, albeit on a limited basis, because there wasn't a whole lot of activity in terms of. Day to day or week to week at the time, um, obviously things ramped up quite a bit as the uh, the negotiations uh, progressed uh, to the point where they reached the deal to form the uh, the Halibut Band. And uh, of course, I've been covering that process from the uh, the initial election of the uh, first band council uh, to where we are today.
1: We have a um, hundred thousand people directly affected by the, and of course, that's in terms of uh, members and applicants, and. If we think back to another big story in Newfoundland, the Codmore term in the early 90s were, where uh, between 20 and 30,000 people were affected, it was a major news item in Newfoundland, stories on TV every night, a story across the country. Here in the enrollment story, we have uh, maybe three times or more people affected, but uh, not nearly as big a story. How How do you think we can... Understand the difference in coverage.
2: I, I think the difference is um, it's numbers uh, and geography. When we look at what happened with the cod moratorium back in the '90s, of course that that impacted uh, a lot of people throughout the entire province, um, and it was a situation where you know fishing uh, is synonymous with Newfoundland. And when you think about something like that uh, from uh, the the federal perspective when you you look at Newfoundland and you see this is what's happened to the fishing industry that's bound to make national headlines because again as I say it's it's it is what Newfoundland and Labrador was considered to be um, on, in mainland Canada a, a fishing community so to speak uh, albeit a, a large provincial community at that I think this time around uh, because the there's no specific um group you know, in terms of one small area the the problem I think with um the lack of of coverage that this has gotten nationally at least uh is the fact that there are so many people who are spread out from coast to coast to coast, and this isn't a matter of uh for example the the eighty two thousand plus who were denied um membership if they were in a small or reasonably small area. Uh, and, you know, this was rising up, uh, the the negative uh, impact that this has had on a lot of people. I think it would gain more attention, but because that 80,000-plus people are spread all over the country, um, it's not, you know, it's not as loud, we'll say, because it may be something that you hear about in a small town because there are 10 or 12 or 20 or 100 people who are affected, but it's not a matter of there are, you know, a thousand people or or everyone in your town is is touched by that in some way like the cod moratorium situation was
1: how about um the way the newfoundland uh, newfoundland politics work of course this is uh the Halibut is not a st john story it's a it's a west coast uh, central story and um one uh, might think that uh you know if the thing was happening on Water Street in St. John's. It would be a bigger story for the Newfoundland media. Do you think uh, that has any bearing on um, on the play the Alibu story gets?
2: I think that's 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 a fair fair assessment. Um, you know, I mean Newfoundland. It, it, it's no secret that, you know, it, it's St. John's-focused, and that's and not necessarily a, a bad thing. You know, the majority of the population uh, is on the uh, east coast of the province, and, of course, the largest community in the province is St. John's, and you, you stretch that out to St. John's, Mount Pearl, Paradise, CBS, that whole area. I mean, that's a huge pocket of, of people, uh, so you, would, uh, you could understand that getting... Um, you know the lion's share of attention, and because there aren't a lot of uh HALIBU members or or potential members or applicants in that area um you could see the story kind of getting lost in the shuffle, and that's where it falls to you know to people like me who are uh in the area of uh i guess uh ground zero will say the the focal point of of this um situation that's that's where it falls upon us to. Make sure we do what we can to get the story out, uh, not only to the the rest of the province, but uh, indeed across the country.
1: And perhaps uh, among people on the on the in St. John's and on the Avalon, there might be the same kind of uh, cynicism among people who don't have family members who aren't directly involved in the Halagu issue, a cynicism about the legitimacy of the story that you know these are instant Indians and. Um, you know they're ruling and for the financial angle et cetera. so we might be um dealing with the same kind of uh, resistance perhaps to the to the credibility of the story
2: to a certain extent but i don't think that's limited by geography uh, i mean i'm here on the ground in you know uh, a, a few minutes away from Halibut migma uh, first nations band council office and i see this uh, these type of comments from people uh, right here um you know, when this whole process started, nobody, including the federal government, the, the Halibut Band, the Federation of Newfoundland Indians, nobody anticipated there would be over 100,000 applicants uh, seeking membership. And I think, you know, what is that number? As the months stretched on and, and people were kind of getting anecdotal uh, information about, well, how many members do you think there's going to be now? How many applicants do we have? That's when the cynicism started, um, you know, locally and outside this uh, this region, because people were starting to wonder, well, if there are legitimately 100,000 people who believe they are um, indigenous, they are of Mi'kmaq ancestry, well, where have they been for the last X number of decades?
1: Now, going back to the the Cod moratorium example the, the other difference uh, in that story, an Alibu story, are the large political demonstrations or or lack thereof. And um, many people re- will remember the, the famous uh, encounter between uh, then fisheries minister John Crosby and some angry fishers. And John Crosby said uh, nose to nose with uh, one of the fishers, I didn't take the fish out of the goddamn water. And that is immortalized on, on, on YouTube. Uh, in the Halapu example, we've had 10,000 people lose their status cards, and we've had no demonstration. So I wonder if the, uh, the sort of um, the uh, the, lack, the relative lack of uh, public demonstrations uh, means that the, the Halapu story is, is less of a story.
2: I don't know if it's if it's less of a story, but it's certainly gotten less attention because of that. I think you're you're absolutely right. The fact that there has been no uh, significant public outcry over this. Yes, there's been uh, numerous comments posted on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the like. Um, you know, people expressing their concerns about the process, uh, relaying their own stories about how they were included and their siblings weren't, or or vice versa um so we're seeing that but when it's on social media when it's kind of floating around in cyberspace it's it's really hidden from the the average person who you know doesn't have a horse in the race so to speak so they're not really looking for this information so they may uh, overlook it um you know if this was uh, in the days before social media for example and the only way people had um, felt they had a means of expressing their anger, their concern, what would be to take to the streets or to hold public demonstrations. I think this story would um, have gained a lot more traction uh, in the public eye because you would start to see hundreds, if not thousands, of people out marching, out holding demonstrations and rallies and town hall meetings and things like that. But, uh, you know, from what I've seen, there you know, there's been very little... Um, public demonstration in person you know boot on the ground type activity uh the majority the overwhelming majority of um reaction i have seen to this has been via social media
1: mm. and it's interesting of course back in uh, in the early 90s 1992 that was a dozen years before facebook uh started so we were in a pre a pre facebook uh era back then and uh... you know, I guess uh, Facebook and the use of Facebook has has really changed
0: things.
2: Yeah, uh, it kind of makes you wonder. You know, if you look back to you know, the the incident you you just referenced, uh, you know, if this was if that was the days of social media, would that you know clip even exist today? Would those fishermen have gone down to a hotel and? Uh, pounded on some ballroom doors to try and get in, or would they be sitting at home on their computers writing blogs about how outrageous and angry and whatnot they thought the situation was? Uh, I've been covering the, uh, especially since the uh, le- letters began going out on January 31st, I've been covering the story and trying to get a few different perspectives. Um, relay some of the uh, stories that are out there, the examples of people who were denied uh, membership and and the reasons for it, Um, because there are, you know, as as I've said to a number of people with over 82,000 rejections, there's 82,000 different stories and different scenarios about why people were um included or excluded from the process. Now obviously we can't tell 82,000 plus stories. So I've been trying to find those unique stories, the the examples where people would look and kind of raise an eyebrow as to how the process unfolded, whether they thought it was fair or or unfair and uh you know that's um that's what I've been focusing on because there hasn't been a whole lot of boots on the ground um you know, then it falls to, to journalists like myself to, you know, suss out those stories and, and find out where those stories are. And, you know, we have to do a little bit of extra digging because it's not delivered to our doorstep in the in the form of a protest or a rally or whatnot. But, uh, you know, those stories are still there and, um, and they're stories that need to be told.
1: We have a, uh, a public meeting, a public forum uh, organized by the Indigenous First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland next week at uh, Corner Brook Regional High. Um, what uh, you'll be covering that story. There'll be, uh, I would anticipate, a fair amount of media there. What will you be looking for from a news point of view uh, from that meeting
2: um, I, I will treat that meeting as I do. You know, most stories I, I, I cover in, in that sense with, you know, a, a town hall forum type uh, aspect. I'll let the meeting unfold. It's I, I'm not looking for anything. I'm going to be curious to see what the reaction is from the general public. I understand uh, uh, Halibut First Nations Chief Brendan Mitchell has been invited uh, to attend that, as have local uh, politicians, both federal and provincial, um, so and of course uh, members of the of the general public. So uh, I'm going to be curious, you know, watching with a a keen eye to see how that meeting unfolds. If it will be, um, you know, an exchange of ideas, an exchange of information, or if people, if this is going to be people's opportunity to to get a little upset and to maybe finally let their frustrations out if they feel that they've been been stifled through this process and have had no means of um... you know getting their message out there uh... you know i, I certainly wouldn't um you know, wouldn't say i'm looking for any type of militant activity or anything like that Um, but i am curious to see just how how the meeting plays out i know the halibut band itself has been holding uh, various meetings throughout the West coast over the last week or so, and um you know they've been um uh, i guess there's been some heated exchanges in those but um you know i i, I don't I don't think it's gotten out of control or anything like that and uh I certainly hope the fame doesn't happen at this uh meeting coming up uh this coming week but um yeah, it will be curious to see. Now that people are kind of assembling together and not just sharing their messages via cyberspace um, how the, how that impacts the mood of of this meeting and how as people start to hear each other's stories and examples of how why they were denied um, what the reaction to that is because you know one thing I am seeing on on social media and in phone calls I, I've gotten hundreds of phone calls from people over the last uh, couple of few weeks, and you know there's a level of Frustration that's uh, I find interesting. It, it's not just anger. You would expect people to be angry and upset and disappointed, sad, whatnot. Um, but the frustration is what I'm I'm seeing is recurring over and over again from people who hear these examples. They have their own examples, and the math doesn't add up to them when they hear about. You know, two people who are siblings living in the same community and have lived in the same community all their lives, one is accepted for membership, the other is turned down. Um, When they hear about a gentleman I did a story with uh, earlier this week, Matthew Connolly, who has been a card carrying member of the former FNI since the 1970s and was a former employee of this uh, organization, uh, has attended numerous cultural events, powwows, and whatnot over the last number of years. Um, somebody I thought would have been a shoe-in to uh, be accepted, and he was rejected. Uh, uh, so when, when people hear those types of examples, they kind of shake their heads and say, well, What's the process here?
1: How is this? And who who are they blaming? When you say frustration, who is their frustration directed against?
2: I think it's primarily the the federal government and the um, the enrollment committee because the the frustration seems to be at the process itself. Um, you know, how were were these decisions reached? Uh, you know, I, I hear comments like, "Was it just a matter of somebody put their hand in a hat and you know decided that they were going to be." Um, of this number of people who were accepted, um, there are people who are wondering: you know, did the application process mean anything? Did people actually the the assessors and the adjudicators actually go through each application, or did they kind of give them a, a quick once-over? And you know, these are the type of frustrations that people are feeling at the system itself, um, which obviously was overseen by the federal government. So I think that's where where the majority of the um the frustration and the anger lies and you know I think the the one issue um at the moment is other than a technical briefing that was held earlier this month when the actual number breakdown was released by the federal government Ottawa has been very silent on this um I I would have expected with the number of people we're talking about the federal minister or a designate would have come to Newfoundland and specifically this part of the province to discuss the issue with either applicants or the media or what not, and there's been nothing um, how
1: about the local uh, liberal mt goody Hutchings have you interviewed her on the topic uh,
2: not since the application letters have are the um, uh, notification letters have gone out i've I spoke to um, Ms Hutchings I think I did an interview with her just prior to the release of the letters um, and we haven 't been able to be in contact since then but i I certainly will be uh, will be hoping to talk to her and uh, and get have
1: you have you found have you have you tried to get an interview with her have you found that she 's been uh, accessible
2: um, she 's generally accessible now uh, to be fair i haven 't tried to get an interview with her she 's obviously been uh, back and forth to Ottawa. Over the last um, well, a couple of weeks since this process uh, unfolded, and uh, quite frankly, I, I've concerned myself at this point with the uh, applicant stories because that's that's the more important issue to me right now. Is as I hear the stories of the people who were turned down, and more importantly, the reasons why they were turned down. Those are the stories that I find more interesting to tell at the moment because those are the the type of stories that I think the average viewer would kind of look and and kind of raise that uh, that eyebrow and wonder, you know, what's what's going on here because on the surface, you know, things seem a little odd. Um especially for people who don't understand the process, who aren't aware of the criteria that was established, um that type of thing. So, you know, I, I will talk to Ms. Hutching no doubt at some point in the very near future and um you know, we'll get the federal government's perspective on this, but uh I, I would really be more interested in, in talking to, and I would hope that, that the, uh, the federal minister at some point would realize that, you know, here's a situation that, as we said, starting this interview, it affects, you know, over 82,000 people, um, over 10,000 people who had status and were not uh, no, no or will be no longer recognized. I think the federal government has an obligation uh, to explain to those people uh Albeit through the media, how do you take ten thousand cards away from former recognized Indigenous people? Uh, how do how does somebody go from being an Indigenous person one day, and when they go to their mailbox the next day, they're they're not—at least in the eyes of the federal government. That's you know that's an interesting question that I think the the federal minister or the prime minister, for that matter, uh, needs to answer.
0: Don Bradshaw and TV correspondent for Western Newfoundland. As Dom mentioned, the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland holds a public forum this coming Thursday, February 23rd at 7.30pm in the cafeteria of Cornerbrook Regional High School. Hopefully, as many of you as possible from the Cornerbrook area will attend. We want the TV cameras to see a packed room. Those who are not able to attend in person can listen online via Bay of Islands radio, B-O-I-R dot C-A. Remember, the enemy of the Halibut will not be in the room on Thursday night. That would be the government of Canada. It is not our chief, Brenda Mitchell, who is keeping up a grueling pace attending meetings across Halibut territory. Keep that in mind when you make your comments and ask your questions. Unity is crucial at this time in our history, and it's great to see the group Friends of Halibut Applicants working with the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly. The two groups used to be estranged. Now they're arm-in-arm on the enrollment issue and on the litigation effort. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Thanks also to Halibut artist Marcus Goss for permission to use celebration time. Follow us on Twitter At Mi'kmaq Matters, that's M-I-Q-M-A-Q Matters, check us out online, mi'kmaq-matters.blogspot.ca. Listen on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. We leave you with the sounds of a Sunday afternoon snowshoe, recorded near Bombedown Brook on the road to York Harbor. This is Glenn Wheeler, till next time.